Hello, ladies and lads. Welcome to Hollow Lake History, the podcast where we go over the notable events during the week. It is currently December 13th. We're going to be covering what happened between December 7th and the 13th. Without kicking around the can too long, let's go ahead and get into the events. Starting off in 1787, Delaware becomes the first state to ratify the Constitution. In Dover, Delaware, the U.S. Constitution is unanimously ratified by all 30 delegates to the Delaware Constitutional Convention, making Delaware the first state of the modern United States. Less than four months before, the Constitution was signed by 37 of the original 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Constitution was sent to the states for ratification, and by the terms of the document, the Constitution would become the binding would become binding once nine of the former thirteen colonies had ratified the document. Delaware led the process, and on June twenty first, seventeen eighty eight, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify the Constitution, making a federal democracy of the new land. Government of the U.S. Constitution took effect on March fourth, seventeen eighty nine. Moving forward to 1941, we have Pearl Harbor being bombed, the day that would live in infamy. I'm only going to talk briefly on this one because I want to do a future episode focusing on Pearl Harbor. Uh, That'll be one of the Monday podcasts at some point in the future. Anyways, at 7.55 a.m. Hawaii time, a Japanese dive bomber bearing the red symbol of the rising sun of Japan on its wings appears out of the clouds above the island of Oahu. A swarm of 360 Japanese warplanes would follow suit, descending on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in a ferocious assault. The surprise attack struck a critical blow against the U.S. Pacific Fleet and drew the United States irrevocably into World War II. And finally, in 1988, earthquakes wreak havoc in Armenia. Two earthquakes hit Armenia on December 7, 1988, killing 60,000 people and destroying nearly half a million buildings. Two tremors, only minutes apart, were measured at 6.9 and 5.8 in magnitude and were felt as far away as Georgia, Turkey, and Iran. It was 11.41 a.m. when the first, more powerful earthquake hit three miles from Spitak, a city of about 30,000 and 20 miles northwest of Kiribakan. The epicenter was not far below the surface, which accounts in part for the terrible destruction. Only four minutes later, the 5.8 magnitude tremor struck nearby, collapsing buildings that had barely managed to hold during the first quake. An eight-mile rupture of the earth, several feet wide in spots, was later found to have been the cause of the quakes. Spatak experienced nearly total destruction. Most of the structures in the city were either cheaply constructed or at brick or stone roofs, and nearly all had collapsed from the shaking. In Leninakan, that's a hard word to say, Armenia's second largest city, with close to 300,000 residents, about 80% of the buildings failed to stand. The sheer scale of the destruction overwhelmed the country's ability to respond. And worse still, officials, controlled by the Soviet government at the time, delayed giving permission for rescuers and relief workers to enter the area. In fact, 
Ten days after the quake, all foreigners were ordered out. The rescuers who were able to enter worked for over a week trying to find survivors. The last survivor was pulled out from under the rubble on December 15th. Many experts believe that the death toll may have far exceeded the initial 60,000 estimate, in part because thousands of people experienced crushing injuries during the quake. These victims often experienced kidney problems following the trauma and died when local health officials were not equipped to treat them. When rebuilding began in subsequent years, more attention was paid to using appropriate construction materials and putting heights, uh, height limits on buildings. Moving to the next day, December 8th, 1914, the Battle of the Falkland Islands starts. Now note that this is different from the War of the Falkland Islands that would take place about 70 years later between Britain and Argentina. This happened during World War I. A month after German naval forces led by Admiral Maximilian von Spee inflicted the Royal Navy's first defeat in a century by seeking two British cruisers with all hands off the southern coast of Chile, Spee's squadron attempts to raid the Falkland Islands located in the southern Atlantic o Ocean, only to be thwarted by the British Navy. Under the command of Admiral Doveton Sturdy, the British seamen sought vengeance on behalf of their defeated fellows. Spee could have given the Falklands a wide berth, but he brought his fleet close to British squadrons anchored in Cape Pembroke in the Falkland Islands, confident that he could outdistance the slow British dreadnoughts or big battleships he saw in the port. Instead, the German light cruisers, damaged by the long voyage and heavy use, soon found themselves pursued by two swift battle cruisers, the HMS Inflexible and HMS Invincible designed by Britain's famous first sea lord, Jackie Fisher, to combine speed and maneuverability with heavy hitting power. The Inflexible opened fire on the German ships from 16,500 yards, careful to stay outside the range of the German guns. Spey's flagship, Scharnhorst, was struck first, with the Admiral still aboard. His two sons on the Gneisenau and Nuremberg also went down with their ships. All told, Germany lost four warships and more than 2,000 sailors in the Falkland Islands, compared with only 10 British deaths. Historians have referred to the Battle of the Falkland Islands as the most decisive naval battle of World War I. It gave the Allies a huge, much-needed surge of confidence on the seas, especially important because other areas of the war, the Western Front and Gallipoli, were not proceeding as hoped. The battle also represents one of the last important instances of old-style naval warfare between ships and sailors and their guns alone without the aid or interference of airplanes, submarines, or underwater minefields. Moving on to 1940, the Chicago Bears defeat the Washington Redskins 73-0 in the NFL Championship game. The Chicago Bears trounced the Redskins in the NFL Championship by a score of 73-0, the largest margin of defeat in NFL history. The Bears were coached by George Hollis, who brought a 6-2 record to their regular season meeting with the Redskins in Washington on November 17th. After Chicago lost 3-7, the Redskins owner George Preston Marshall told reporters that Hollis and his team were quitters and crybabies. Hallis used Marshall's words to galvanize his pet players, 
and the Bears scored 78 points in their next two games to set up a showdown with the Redskins in the league's championship on December 8th. Less than a minute into the game, the Bears running back Bill Omansky ran 68 yards to score the first touchdown. After the Redskins narrowly missed an opportunity to tie the game, the Bears clamped down and began to dominate, leaving the field at halftime with a 28-0 lead. Things only got worse for the Redskins, and by the end of the second half, officials were asking Hollis not to let his team kick for extra points, as they were running out of footballs after too many had been kicked into the stands. I think it's safe to say that's not the only thing that was being kicked that day. In 1941, Jeanette Rankin casts the sole vote against joining World War II. Jeanette Rankin was the first woman elected to Congress and a dedicated lifelong pacifist, and she cast the sole congressional vote against the U.S. declaration of war on Japan. She was the only member of Congress to vote against U.S. involvement in both world wars, having been amongst those who voted against American entry into World War I nearly a quarter of a century earlier. Rankin was a committed pacifist and she cared little about the damage her beliefs caused her political career. Although some representatives joined her in voting against World War I in 1917, many citizens saw her vote as evidence that a woman could not handle the difficult burdens of national leadership. Perhaps as a result, Montanans voted her out of office two years later. However, she won re-election re to the House in 1940, just in time to face another vote on war. While her commitment to pacifism was politically harmful during World War I, Rankin knew that in the case of World War II, it would be downright suicidal. The surprise Japanese attack on the U.S. military base at Pearl Harbor was devastating, and the zeal for revenge was at fever pitch. The vast majority of Americans supported President Roosevelt's call for a declaration of war. Rankin, however, believed that Roosevelt deliberately provoked the Japanese to attack because he wanted to bring U the U.S. into the European war against Germany. She was determined not to cooperate with the President's plan. After a 40-minute debate on the floor of the House, a roll call vote began. When her turn came, Rankin stood alone and said, As a woman, I can't go fight a war, and I refuse to send anyone else to do so. When news of Rankin's vote reached the crowd gathered outside the Capitol, some patriots threatened to attack the Montana Congresswoman, and police escorted her out of the building. Rankin was vilified in the press, accused of disloyalty, and called Japan Japanette Rankin, among other impolite names. She stood her ground, however, and never apologized for her vote. Imagine today having a person in the political spectrum stand their ground on something they know is deeply unpopular. Anyways, in 1949, Chinese nationalists would move their capital to Taiwan. As they steadily lose ground to the communist forces of Mao Zedong, Chinese nationalist leaders depart for the island of Taiwan, where they establish their new capital. Nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek left for the island the following day. This action marked the beginning of the two Chinas scenario that left mainland China under communist control and vexed the U.S. diplomacy for the next 30 years. It also signaled the effective end of the long struggle between Chinese nationalist forces and those of the communist leader Mao Zedong, though scattered Chinese nationalists would continue sporadic combat with communist armies. 
At the time, many observers hoped that the end of the fighting and the Chinese nationalist decision to establish a separate government on Taiwan might make it easier for foreign governments to recognize the new Communist People's Republic of China. For the United States, however, the action merely posed a troubling diplomatic problem. Many in America, including members of the so-called China lobby, individuals and groups from both public and private life who tenaciously supported the Chinese nationalists, called upon the administration of President Truman to continue its support of Chiang's government by withholding recognition of the communist government on the mainland. Twenty years later, in 1969, President Nixon announces that the Vietnam War will come to an end. At a news conference, President Richard Nixon says the Vietnam War is coming to, quote, a conclusion as a result of the plan that we have instituted, end quote. Nixon had announced at the conference in Midway in June that the United States would be following a new program he termed Vietnamization. Under the provisions of this program, South Vietnamese forces would be built up so they could assume more responsibility for the war. As South Vietnamese forces became more capable, U.S. forces would be withdrawn from combat and returned to the United States. In his speech, President Nixon pointed out that he had already ordered the withdrawal of 60,000 U.S. troops. Concurrently, he had issued orders to, the, to provide the South Vietnamese with more modern equipment and weapons and increased the advisory effort as all parts of the Vietnamese program. As Nixon was holding his press conference, troops from the U.S. 25th Infantry Division, the 2nd Brigade, began departing from Vietnam. Nixon's pronouncements that the war was ending proved premature, however. In April of 1970, he expanded the war by ordering U.S. and South Vietnamese troops to attack communist sanctuaries in Cambodia. The resulting outcry across the United States led to a number of anti-war demonstrations. It was at one of these demonstrations that the National Guard shot four protesters at Kent State. Although Nixon did continue to decrease American troop strength in South Vietnam, the fighting continued. In 1972, the North Vietnamese launched a massive invasion of South Vietnam. The South Vietnamese forces reeled under the attack but eventually prevailed with the help of U.S. air power. After extensive negotiations and the bombing of North Vietnam in December of 1972, the Paris Peace Accords were signed in January of 1973. Under the provisions of the Accords, U.S. forces were complete with, completely withdrawn. Unfortunately, this did not end the war for the Vietnamese, and the fighting continued until April of 1975, when Saigon fell to the Communists. In 1980, John Lennon is shot. John Lennon, a former member of the Beatles band, the rock group that transformed popular music in the 60s, is shot and killed by an obsessed fan in New York City. The 40-year-old artist was entering his luxury Manhattan apartment building when Mark David Chapman shot him four times at close range with a 38 caliber revolver. Lennon was bleeding profusely and was rushed to the hospital, but died en route. Chapman had received an autograph from Lennon earlier in the day and voluntarily remained at the scene of the shooting until he was arrested by police. For a week, hundreds of bereaved fans kept a vigil outside the Dakota, Lennon's apartment building, and demonstrations of mourning were held around the world. Psychiatrists had deemed Chapman a borderline psychotic. 
He was instructed to plead insanity, but instead he pled guilty to murder. He was sentenced to 20 years to life. In 2000, New York State prison officials denied Chapman a parole hearing, telling him that his vicious and violent act was apparently fueled by his need to be acknowledged. He remains behind bars to this day. John Lennon is memorialized in Strawberry Fields, a section of Central Park across the street from the Dakota that Yoko Ono, John Lennon's wife, landscaped in honor of her late husband. And finally, in 1987, superpowers agree to reduce nuclear arsenals. At a summit meeting in Washington, D.C., President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev signed the first treaty between the two superpowers to reduce their massive nuclear arsenals. Previous agreements had merely been attempts by the two Cold War adversaries to limit the growth of their nuclear arsenals. The historic agreement banned ground-launched short- and medium-range missiles, of which the two nations collectively possessed 2,611, most of them located in Europe and Southeast Asia. The pact was seen as an important step towards a, the agreement on the reduction of long-range U.S. and Soviet missiles, first achieved in 1991 when President George H. Bush and Gorbachev agreed to destroy more than a quarter of their nuclear warheads. The following year, Bush and Russian President Boris Yeltsin agreed to drastically reduce their numbers of long-range missiles again to around 3,000 launching systems each by the year 2003. In 2001, after a decade of arms control stalemate, President George W. Bush Jr. and Russian President Vladimir Putin made a preliminary agreement to further reduce their nuclear arsenals to around 2,000 long-range miss missiles each. Moving on to the next day of December 9th, in 1835, the Texan army captures San Antonio. Inspired by the spirited leadership of Benjamin Rush Milam, the newly created Texan army takes possession of the city of San Antonio, an important victory for the Republic of Texas in its war for independence from Mexico. My Lamb was born in 1788 in Frankfort, Kentucky. He became a citizen and soldier of Mexico in 1824, when newly independent Mexico was still under a Republican constitution. Like many Americans who immigrated to the Mexican city or Mexican state of Texas, Milam found that the government both welcomed and feared the growing number of Americans and treated them with uneven fairness. When Milam heard in 1835 that Santa Ana had overthrown the Mexican Republic and established himself as a dictator, Milam renounced his Mexican citizenship and joined the ragtag army of the newly proclaimed Independent Republic of Texas. After helping the Texas Army capture the city of Goliad, Milam went on a reconnaissance mission to the southwest, but returned to join the army for its planned attack on San Antonio, only to learn that the generals were postponing the attack for the winter. Aware that Santa Ana's forces were racing towards Texas to suppress the rebellion, Milam worried that any hesitation would spell the end of the revolution. Milam made an impassioned call for volunteers, asking, Quote, who will go with old Ben Milam to San Antonio? Inspired by Milam's bold challenge, 300 men did volunteer, and the Texas Army began its attack on San Antonio at dawn on December 5th. By 
by December 9th, the defending forces of the Mexican army were badly beaten and the commanding generals surrendered the city. Milam, however, was not there to witness the results of his leadership. He was killed instantly by a sniper bullet on December 7th. If Milam had survived, he might well have been among the doomed defenders of the Alamo that were wiped out by Santa Ana's troops the following March. In 1917, during World War I, Jerusalem surrenders to British troops. On the morning of December 9, 1917, after Turkish troops move out of the region after only a single day of fighting, officials of the Holy City of Jerusalem offer the keys to the city to the encroaching British troops. The British, led by General Edmund Allenby, who had arrived from the Western Front the previous June to take over command in Egypt, entered the Holy City two days later under strict instructions from London on how not to appear disrespectful to the city, its people, or its traditions. Allenby entered Jerusalem on foot, in deliberate contrast to Kaiser Wilhelm's more flamboyant entrance on horseback in 1898, and no Allied flags were flown over the city, while Muslim troops from India were dispatched to guard the religious landmark of the Dome of the Rock. In a proclamation declaring martial law that was read aloud to the city's people in English, French, Arabic, Hebrew, Russian, and Greek, Allenby assured them that the occupying power would not inflict further harm on Jerusalem, its inhabitants, or its holy places. Quote, Since your city is regarded with affection by the adherents of the three great religions of mankind, and its soil has been consecrated by the prayers and pilgrimages of multitudes of devout people, I make it known to you that every sacred building, monument, holy spot, shrine, traditional site, endowment, pious bequest, or customary place of prayer, will be maintained and protected according to the existing customs and belief of those whose faith they are sacred." End quote. Church bells in Rome and London rang to celebrate the peaceful British arrival in Jerusalem. Alambai's successes, after so much discouragement on the Western Front, elated and inspired Allied supporters everywhere. And finally, in 1979, smallpox is officially declared eradicated. A commission of scientists declare that smallpox has been eradicated. The disease, which carries around 30% chance for death for those who contract it, is the only infectious disease afflicting humans that has been officially eradicated. Something similar to smallpox has ravaged humanity for thousands of years, with the earliest known description appearing in Indian, Indian accounts from the 2nd century BC. It was believed that the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses V died of smallpox in 11,045 BC. However, recent research indicates that the actual smallpox virus may have evolved as late as 1580 CE. A type of inoculation, introducing a small amount of the disease in order to bring on a mild case that results in immunity, was widespread in China by the 16th century. There is no record of a smallpox-like illness in the Americas before European contact, and the fact that Europeans brought pox with them was a major factor in their conquest and near eradication of many of the indigenous peoples of the North, South, and Central America. Smallpox was the leading cause of death in 18th century Europe, leading to many experiments with inoculation. In 1796, the English scientist Edward Jenner discovered a vaccine. 
Unlike other types of inoculation, Jenner's vaccine, made from a closely related disease that affects cows, carried zero risk of transmission. Many European countries and the American states made the vaccination of infants mandatory, and incidents of smallpox declined over the 19th and 20th centuries. Compared to other epidemic diseases such as polio or malaria, smallpox eradication was relatively simple because of the disease lives only in humans, making human vaccination highly effective at stopping its spread, and its symptoms appear quickly, making it easy to identify and isolate outbreaks. Starting in 1967, the World Health Organization undertook a wide, worldwide effort to identify and stamp out the last remaining outbreaks of the disease. By the mid-70s, smallpox was only president, present in the Horn of Africa and parts of the Indian subcontinent. The last naturally occurring case was diagnosed in Somalia in 1977. Two years later, doctors proclaimed its eradication. The elimination of smallpox is one of the major successes in the history of science and medicine. Moving on to the next day, December 10th, in 1864, General William T. Sherman completes his march to the sea during the Civil War, when he arrives in front of Savannah, Georgia. Since mid-November of that year, Sherman's army had been sweeping from Atlanta across the state to the south and east towards Savannah, one of the last Confederate seaports still unoccupied by Union forces. Along the way, Sherman destroyed farms and railroads, burned storehouses, and fed his army off of the land. In his own words, Sherman intended to, quote, make Georgia howl, a plan that was approved by President Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, General-in-Chief of the Union armies. The city of Savannah was fortified and defended by some 10,000 Confederate soldiers under the command of General William Hardy. The rebels flooded the rice fields around Savannah, so only a few narrow causeways provided access to the city. Sherman's army was running low on supplies, and he had not made contact with supply ships off of the coast. His army had been completely cut off from the north, and only the reports of destruction provided any evidence of its whereabouts. Sherman directed General Oliver O. Howard to the coast to locate friendly ships. Howard dispatched Captain William Duncan and two comrades to contact the Union fleet, but nothing was heard of the trio for several days. Duncan located a Union gunboat that carried him to Hilton Head, South Carolina, and supply ships were then sent to Savannah, and Duncan continued on to Washington, D.C. to deliver news of the successful march to the sea to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Then, in 1898, the Treaty of Paris ends the Spanish-American War and grants the United States its first overseas empire. The Spanish-American War had its origins in the rebellion against Spanish rule that began in Cuba in 1895. The repressive measures that Spain took to suppress the guerrilla war, such as herding Cuba's rural population into disease-ridden garrison towns, were graphically portrayed in the U.S. newspapers and inflamed public opinion. In January of 1898, violence in Havana led U.S. authorities to order the, USS ba the battleship USS Maine to the city's port to protect American citizens. On February 15th, a massive explosion of unknown origin sank the Maine in Havana Harbor, killing 260 of the 400 American crew members aboard. An official U.S. Naval inquiry ruled in March, without much evidence, 
that the ship was blown up by a mine, but it did not directly place the blame on Spain. Much of Congress and a majority of the American public expressed little doubt that Spain was responsible, however, and called for a declaration of war. In April, the U.S. Congress prepared for war, adopting joint congressional resolutions demanding a Spanish withdrawal from Cuba and authorizing President William McKinley to use force. On the 23rd of April, McKinley asked for 125,000 volunteers to fight against Spain. The next day, Spain issued a declaration of war against the United States, and the United States declared war on April 25th. On May 1st, the U.S. Asiatic Squadron, under Commodore George Dewey, destroyed the Spanish Pacific Fleet at Manila Bay in the first battle of the Spanish-American War. Dewey's decisive victory cleared the way for U.S. occupation of Manila in August and the eventual transfer of the Philippines from Spanish to American control. On the other side of the world, a Spanish fleet docked in Cuba's Santiago Harbor in May after racing across the Atlantic. A superior U.S. naval force arrived soon after and blockaded the harbor. In June, the U.S. 5th Army Corps landed in Cuba with the aim of marching to Santiago and launching a coordinated land and sea assault on the Spanish stronghold. Included amongst the U.S. ground troops was Theodore Roosevelt's led Rough Riders, a collection of Western cowboys and Eastern Blue Bloods officially known as the 1st U.S. Voluntary Cavalry. On July 1st, the Americans won the Battle of San Juan Hill, and the next day began the Siege of Santiago. On the 3rd of July, the Spanish fleet was destroyed off of Santiago by U.S. warships under Admiral William Sampson, and on July 17th, the Spanish surrendered the city, and thus Cuba, to the Americans. In Puerto Rico, Spanish forces likewise crumbled in the face of superior U.S. forces, and on August 12th, an armistice was signed between Spain and the U.S., ending the brief and one-sided conflict. On December 10th, the Treaty of Paris officially ended the Spanish-American War, and the once proud Spanish Empire was virtually dissolved as the United States took over much of Spain's overseas holdings. Puerto Rico and Guam were ceded to the United States, the Philippines were bought for $20 million, and Cuba became a U.S. protectorate. Philippine insurgents, who fought against Spanish rule during the war, immediately turned their guns against the new occupiers, and ten times more U.S. troops died suppressing the Philippines than in defeating Spain. Moving on to 1915, the one-millionth Ford car rolls off the assembly line at the River Rogue plant in Detroit. At first, Henry Ford had built his cars like every other automaker did, one at a time. But as factories' efficiency and output steadily increased, and after he introduced the moving assembly line in 1913, the company's productivity soared. Ford was determined to build what he called a motor car for the great multitude, and that's just what he did. By mass-producing just one kind of car from 1908 on, that car was the Model T Ford, which could take advantage of the economies of scale that were unavailable to smaller car makers and pass the savings on to his customers. Between 1908 and 1927, Ford sold more than 15 million Model Ts in all. They cost $850 at first, which is about 20000 today, but by the end of their run, Ford had managed to reduce the price to about 300 which is 3700 today. No one really paid much attention to the one-millionth car, 
As a matter of fact, the Ford Times said, with 25 assembly plants and with a big factory in Detroit assembling so many Ford cars a day, they had passed the million mark without even knowing it. The 10 millionth Ford, however, traveled back and forth from New York to San Francisco and from Los Angeles to Chicago in the summer of 1924, inspiring raucous celebrations everywhere it went. The company even made a movie of this Goodwill tour called Fording the Lincoln Highway. Along with the 15 millionth Ford in 1927 came another milestone, the company's announcement that it was discontinuing the classic but no longer beloved Model T. Compared to that news, the release of the 20 millionth Ford was fairly dull. Emblazoned with the words 20 millionth and the Ford logo on both sides and the top, that car went on a national barnstorming tour in 1931 and then directly to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. And the last event of December 10th is that Frank Sinatra Jr. is rescued from a frightening ordeal. Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped in Lake Tahoe, California on December 8th and was allowed to talk to his father briefly. The 19-year-old man, who was trying to follow in his father's footsteps by pursuing a singing career, was abducted at gunpoint from his hotel at Harrah's Casino and taken to Canaga Park, an area of Southern California's San Fernandino Valley. After a brief conversation between father and son, the kidnappers demanded a ransom of 240000 Barry Keenan, the young mastermind behind the scheme, had also considered abducting the sons of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. However, he and his partners ended up deciding upon Frank Sinatra Jr. as they thought that he would be tough enough to handle the stress of being kidnapped. Although the crime was originally scheduled for November, President Kennedy's assassination delayed their plan. Immediately following his son's abduction, Frank Sr. received offers of assistance from Attorney General Robert Kennedy and Sam Giancana, which I may pronounce that name wrong, one of the country's most powerful organized crime leaders. He declined and instead accepted aid from the FBI. After a series of phone calls, the kidnappers revealed the drop point for the ransom money and said that Frank Jr. could be found on Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. In an attempt to, to avoid a public scene, law enforcement officials picked the young Sinatra up and brought him home in the trunk of their car. Within a couple of days, John Irwin, one of Keenan's partners, turned himself into the San Diego FBI field office and confessed to the crime. By December 14th, all of the perpetrators had been located and arrested. Moving on to December the 11th, in 1915, Yuan Shi Kai accepts the Chinese throne. With war raging in Europe, conflict also reigns in the Far East between two traditional enemies, Japan and an internally divided China. On December 11, 1915, the first president of the new Chinese Republic, Yuan Shi Kai, who had come to power in the wake of revolution in 1911 and the fall of the Manchu dynasty in 1912, accepts the title of Emperor of China. To give a little bit of context for this, Japan had declared war on Germany in August of 1914 and had captured the most important German overseas naval base at Tsingtao on China's Shangtung Peninsula by amphibious assault. In January of 1915, Japan's imperialist-minded foreign minister, 
Kato Takaaki presented China with the so-called 21 demands, which included the extension of direct Japanese control over more of Shantung, southern Manchuria, and eastern Inner Mongolia, as well as the seizure of more territory including islands in the South Pacific controlled by Germany. If accepted in their entirety, the 21 demands would have essentially reduced China to a Japanese protectorate. Though Yuan, a former general and China's president since February of 1912, was forced to accept all but the most radical of the demands, he attempted to use Chinese anger over them to justify his bid for restoring the monarchy and installing himself as emperor. Having already dismissed the Chinese parliament and expelled the KMT party from the government, he was now ruling through provincial military governors throughout the country. The return to monarchy was met by such strong opposition within and outside of China, including from some of those same military governors, that Yuan was quickly forced to return the country to the republican form of government. He would die the following year. In 1936, King Edward VIII will abdicate the throne of England. After ruling for less than one year, Edward VIII becomes the first English monarch to voluntarily abdicate the throne. He chose to abdicate after the British government, public, and the Church of England condemned his decision to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Warfield Simpson. On the evening of December 11th, he gave a radio address in which he explained, I have found it impossible to carry on the heavy burden of my responsibility and to discharge the duties of king, as I would wish to do, without the help and support of the woman I love. On December 12th, his younger brother, the Duke of York, was proclaimed King George VI. Edward, born in 1894, was the eldest son of King George V, who became the British sovereign in 1910. Still unmarried as he approached his 40th birthday, he socialized with the fashionable London society of the day. By 1934, he had fallen deeply in love with American socialite Wallace Warfield Simpson, who was married to Ernest Simpson, an English-American businessman who had lived with Mrs. Simpson near London. Wallace, who was born in Pennsylvania, had previously married and divorced a U.S. Navy pilot. The royal family disapproved of Edward's married mistress, but by 1936 the prince was intent on marrying her. Before he could discuss the intention with his father, George V had died in January of 1936, and Edward was proclaimed king. The new king proved popular with his subjects, and his coronation was scheduled for May of 1937. His affair with Mrs. Simpson was reported in American and continental European newspapers, but due to a gentleman's agreement between the British press and the government, the affair was kept out of British newspapers. On the 27th of October, 1936, Mrs. Mrs. Simpson obtained a preliminary decree of divorce, presumably with the intent of marrying the king, which precipitated a major scandal. To the Church of England and most British politicians, an American woman twice divorced was unacceptable as a prospective British queen. Winston Churchill, then a conservative backbencher, was the only notable politician to support Edward. Despite the seemingly united front against him, Edward could not be dissuaded. 
He proposed a morganic marriage in which Wallace would be granted no rights of rank or property, but on December 2nd, Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin rejected the suggestion as impractical. The next day, the scandal broke on the front pages of British newspapers and was discussed openly in Parliament. With no resolution possible, the King renounced the throne on December 10th. The next day, Parliament approved the abdication instrument, and Edward VIII's reign came to an end. The new King, George VI, made his older brother the Duke of Windsor. On June 3, 1937, the Duke of Windsor and Wallace Warfield married at Chateau de Cande in France Lior Valley. For the next two years, the Duke and Duchess lived primarily in France, but visited other European countries, including Germany, where the Duke was honored by Nazi officials in October of 1937 and met with Adolf Hitler. After the outbreak of World War II, the Duke accepted a position as liaison officer with the French. In June of 1940, France fell to the Nazis, and Edward and Wallace went to Spain. During this period, the Nazis concocted a scheme to kidnap Edward with the intention of returning him to the British throne as a puppet king. George VI, like his Prime Minister Winston Churchill, was adamantly opposed to any peace with Nazi Germany. Unaware of the Nazi kidnapping plot, but conscious of Edward's pre-war Nazi sympathies, Churchill hastily offered Edward the governmentship of the Bahamas and the West Indies. The Duke and Duchess set sail from Lisbon, Portugal on August 1, 1940, narrowly escaping a Nazi SS team sent to seize them. In 1941, Germany declares war on the United States. Adolf Hitler declares war on the United States, bringing America, which had been neutral, into the European conflict. The bombing of Pearl Harbor surprised even Germany. Although Hitler had made an oral agreement with his Axis partner, Japan, that Germany would join a war against the United States, he was uncertain as to how the war would be engaged. Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor answered that question. On December 8th, Japanese Ambassador Oshima went to German Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop to nail the Germans down on a formal declaration of war against America. Von Ribbentrop stalled for time. He knew that Germany was under no obligation to do this under the terms of the Tripartite Pact, which promised help if Japan was attacked, but not if Japan was the aggressor. Von Ribbentrop feared that the addition of another antagonist, the United States, would overwhelm the German war effort. But Hitler thought otherwise. He was convinced that the United States would soon beat him to the punch and declare war on Germany. The U.S. Navy was already attacking German U-boats, and Hitler despised Roosevelt for his repeated verbal attacks against his Nazi ideology. He also believed that Japan was much stronger than it was, that, it once, that once it had defeated the United States, it would turn and help Germany defeat Russia. So at 3.30 p.m. Berlin time on December 11th, the German charge d'affaires in Washington handed American Secretary of State Cordell Hull a copy of the Declaration of War. That very same day, Hitler addressed the Reichstag to defend the Declaration. The failure of the New Deal, argued Hitler, was the real cause of the war, as President Roosevelt, supported by plurocrats and Jews, attempted to cover up for the collapse of his economic agenda. Quote, First he incites war, 
then falsifies the causes, then audaciously wraps himself in a cloak of Christian hypocrisy and slowly but surely leads mankind to war, end quote. The Reichstag leapt to their feet in thunderous applause. The final event for December 11th, in 1994, Russian forces would enter Chechnya. In the largest Russian military offensive since the 1979 invasion of Afghanistan, thousands of troops and hundreds of tanks pour into the breakaway Russian Republic of Chechnya. Encountering only light resistance, Russian forces had by evening pushed to the outskirts of the Chechen capital of Grozny, where several thousand Chechen volunteers vowed a bitter fight against the Russians. With the collapse of the USSR in 1991, Chechnya, like many of the other republics encompassed by the former Soviet Union, declared its independence. However, unlike Georgia, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, and other former Soviet states, Chechnya held only the barest autonomy under Soviet rule and was not considered one of the 15 official Soviet republics. Instead, Chechnya was regarded as one of the many republics within the Russian Federation. Russian President Boris Yeltsin, who permitted the dissolution of the Soviet Union, would not tolerate the secession of a state within territorial Russia. About the size of Connecticut and located in southeast Russia on the Caspian Sea, Chechnya was conquered by the Russians in the 1850s as the Russian Empire pushed south towards the Middle East. Its people are largely Muslim and fiercely independent, and the region has been a constant irritant to its Russian and Soviet rulers. In August of 1991, oh boy, Dzhokhar I apologize for butchering that, a Chechen politician and former Soviet Air Force general toppled Chechnya's local communist government and established an anti-Russian autocratic state. President Yeltsin feared the secession of Chechnya would prompt a domino effect of independence movements within the vast Russian Federation. He had hoped also to recover Chechnya's valuable oil resources. After an ineffective attempt at Chechen opposition groups, Russian invasion began on December 1, 1994. After the initial gains of the Russian army, the Chechen rebels demonstrated a fierce resistance in Grozny, and thousands of Russian troops died, and many more Chechen civilians were killed during almost two years of heavy fighting. In August of 1996, Grozny was retaken by Chechen rebels after a year of Russian occupation, and a ceasefire was declared. Moving on to December 12th, the only thing that I really found of note was that in 1963, Kenya declared its independence from Britain. The East African nation is freed from its colonial oppressors, but its struggle for democracy is far from over. A decade before, in 1952, a rebellion known as the Mau Mau Uprising had shaken the British colony. Not only did the British spend an estimated 55 million pounds suppressing the uprising, they also carried out massacres of civilians, forced several hundred thousand Kenyans into concentration camps, and suspended civil liberties in some cities. The war ended in the imprisonment and execution of many of the rebels, but the British also understood that things had permanently changed. 
The colonial government introduced reforms, making it easier for Kenyans to own land and grow coffee, which was a major cash crop previously reserved for only European settlers. Kenyans were allowed to be elected to the Legislative Council beginning in 1957. With nationalist movements sweeping across the continent, and with Britain no longer financially or military capable of sustaining its empire, the British government and representatives from the Kenyan independence movement met in 1960 to negotiate independence. The agreement called for a 66-seat legislative council with 33 seats reserved for black Kenyans and 20 for other ethnic groups. Jomo Kenyatta, a former leader of the Kenyan African Nationalist Union, whom the British had imprisoned on false charges, was sworn in as Kenya's first prime minister on June 1, 1963, in preparation for the transition to independence. The new nation's flag was modeled on that of the Kenyan African National Union and featured a Maasai shield at its center. Kenya's problems did not end with independence, however. Fighting with ethnic Somali rebels in the north continued from the time of independence until 1969, and Kenyatta instituted a one-party rule which led to a corrupt and autocratic government until his death in 1978. Questions about the fairness of its elections continue to plague the country, which instituted a new constitution in 2010. Kenyatta's son, Uhuru, has been president since 2013. Moving on to December 13th, in 1577, explorer Francis Drake sets sail from England. English seaman Francis Drake sets out from Plymouth, England with five ships and 164 men on a mission to raid Spanish holdings on the Pacific coast of the New World and to explore the Pacific Ocean. Three years later, Drake's return to Plymouth marked the first circumnavigation of the Earth by a British explorer. After crossing the Atlantic, Drake abandoned two of his ships in South America and then sailed into the Straits of Magellan with the remaining three. A series of devastating storms besieged his expedition in the treacherous Straits, wrecking one ship and forcing another to return to England. Only the Golden Hind reached the Pacific Ocean, but Drake continued undaunted up the western coast of South America, raiding Spanish settlements and capturing a rich Spanish treasure ship. Drake then continued up the western coast of North America, searching for a possible northeast passage back to the Atlantic. Reaching as far north as present-day Washington State before turning back, Drake paused near San Francisco Bay in June of 1579 to repair his ship and prepare for a journey across the Pacific. Calling the land Nova Albion, Drake claimed the territory for Queen Elizabeth I. On September 26, 1580, the Golden Hind returned to Plymouth, England, bearing treasure, spice, and valuable information about the world's great oceans. In 1916, soldiers perish in avalanches as World War I rages on. A powerful avalanche kills hundreds of Austrian soldiers in a barracks near Italy's Mount Mar Marmolada. On December 13, 1916. 
Over a period of several days afterwards, avalanches in the Italian Alps killed an estimated 10,000 Austrian and Italian soldiers in mid-December. The avalanches occurred as the Austrians and Italians were fighting each other during World War I, and some witnesses would claim that the avalanches were purposefully created to be used as a weapon. Though there is little evidence that this was the case with these avalanches, it is possible that avalanches were used as weapons at other times during the war. The Italians had entered World War I on the side of the Allies against Germany and Austria-Hungary in late April of 1915. Over the next three years, the Italian army engaged the Austrians in a series of bloody battles in the mountainous region along the Isonzo River near the Italian-Austrian border. The conditions in the mountains were often worse than the actual fighting. An Austrian officer once said, the mountains in winter are more dangerous than the Italians. And this was certainly true in mid-December of 1916 when heavy snowfall in the Alps created ripe conditions for avalanches. In 1937, during the Sino-Japanese War, which some people consider to be a part of World War II, Nanking, the capital of China, falls to Japanese forces, and the Chinese government flees to Hankow further inland along the Yangtze River. To break the spirit of Chinese resistance, Japanese General Matsui Awane ordered that the city of Nanking be destroyed. Much of the city was burned, and Japanese troops launched a campaign of atrocities against civilians. In what became known as the Rape of Nanking, the Japanese butchered an estimated 150,000 male war prisoners, massacred an additional 50,000 male civilians, and raped and murdered 20,000 women and girls of all ages, many of whom were also mutilated. Shortly after the end of World War II, Matsui was found guilty of war crimes by the International Military Tribunal for the Far East and executed. In the year 2000, Vice President Al Gore reluctantly concedes defeat to Texas Governor George W. Bush in his bid for the presidency, following weeks of legal battles over the recounting of votes in Florida. In a televised speech from his ceremonial office next to the White House, Gore said that while he was deeply disappointed and sharply disagreed with the Supreme Court verdict that ended his campaign, he said that partisan rancor must now be put aside. Quote, I accept the finality of the outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College, and tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. End quote. Gore had won the national popular vote by more than 500,000 votes, but narrowly lost Florida, giving the Electoral College to Bush 271 to 266. Gore said that he had telephoned Bush to offer his congratulations, honoring him for the first time with the title President-Elect. A little more than an hour later, Bush addressed the nation for the first time as President-Elect, declaring that the nation must rise above a house divided. Speaking from the podium of the Texas House of Representatives, Bush devoted his speech to themes of reconciliation following one of the closest and most disputed presidential elections in U.S. history. Quote, I was not elected to serve one party, but to serve one nation, Bush said. 
And finally, in 2003, Saddam Hussein is captured during the Iraqi war. After spending nine months on the run, former Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein is captured on December 13, 2003. Saddam's downfall began on March 20, 2003, when the United States led an invasion force into Iraq to topple his government, which had been controlling the country for more than 20 years. Saddam Hussein was born into a poor family in Tikrit, 100 miles outside of Baghdad, in 1937. After moving to Baghdad as a teenager, Saddam joined the now infamous Ba'ath Party, which he would later lead. He participated in several coup attempts, finally helping to install his cousin as dictator of Iraq in July of 1968. Saddam took over for his cousin 11 years later. During his 24 years in office, Saddam's secret police, charged with protecting his power, terrorized the public, ignoring the human rights of the nation's citizens. While many of his people faced poverty, he lived in incredible luxury, building more than 20 lavish palaces throughout the country. Obsessed with security, he is said to have moved among them often, always sleeping in secret locations. In the early 1980s, Saddam involved his country in an eight-year war with Iran, which is estimated to have taken more than a million lives on both sides. He is alleged to have used nerve agents and mustard gas on Iranian soldiers during the conflict, as well as chemical weapons on Iraq's own Kurdish, Kurdish population in northern Iraq in 1988. After he invaded Kuwait in 1990, a U.S.-led coalition invaded Iraq in 91, forcing the dictator's army to leave its smaller neighbor, but failing to remove Saddam from power. Throughout the 90s, Saddam faced both UN economic sanctions and airstrikes aimed at crippling his ability to produce chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. With Iraq continuing to face allegations of illegal oil sales and weapons building, the United States again invaded the country in March of 2003 with the expressed purpose of ousting Saddam and his regime. We have not yet left Iraq. And that'll wrap up this week's events in history. I hope that you all enjoyed. I know that I'm certainly enjoying doing these longer podcasts now. I think it'll help uh, grow the channel, which, by the way, I encourage you all to give a follow and share this with your friends. I would like to thank you all for listening. This is the Hollow Leg signing off.